1: Welcome to the Friday Show, thanks for tuning in, I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is the Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions, questions about stuff going on in your life, anything and everything, all you have to do is call us, you can dial 210-340-9585, that's 340-9585, if you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR, numerically, that's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at com. Or you can use our free Calvary Chapel mobile app if you're driving in your car. The safest way to call, especially with our wet streets today, is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the Call Now banner at the top of your screen. Everything else can be hands-free. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. We'd love to have your calls. Hey, quick programming note. We will not be live on Monday in honor of the the Labor Day holiday. It will be a pre-recorded broadcast. So keep that in mind. And then, Lord willing, we'll be back Tuesday live at 4 o'clock, as we always are. So that's just for this coming Monday. And uh, look forward to seeing you again on Tuesday. Let's see if we can end the week with some good calls and questions. Let me start with um, an anonymous question. He or she says, Romans 8.1 says there's no condemnation. Why do I feel condemned when I deliberately sin? Well, anonymous, when you deliberately sin, you ought to feel condemned. I mean, think about the way you phrase that question. If you deliberately sin, how can we keep on sinning? Where grace abounds, I'm sorry, where sin abounds, grace all the more abounds. What then shall I say? Shall we keep on sinning? The King James translation of Paul's letter says, God forbid. So here's the reason you feel condemned. I'm going to give you two reasons you feel condemned when you deliberately sin. First because you might not be saved seriously when you deliberately sin especially when there's a pattern of it what makes you think you're saved now I hope I'm wrong and I hope you're saved and I hope this is just an occasional slip into sin but you use the word deliberately sin it's as though you plan your sin and real believers cannot do that we struggle with sin but the idea is we struggle and your question seems to suggest that you're not struggling you just give in So it's very, very important. Why do I feel condemned when I deliberately sin? The second reason you feel condemned is because the devil is trying to convince you. Now, let me rephrase. The Holy Spirit might be the one trying to convince you you're not his, but if it's the devil, if you really belong to the Lord, it's the devil trying to make sure you don't believe you're really his. You know, Jesus said, If you abide in me, I will abide in you. An anonymous, anybody abiding in Christ doesn't experience condemnation. Now, the devil lies and he tries to heap guilt, but guilt and condemnation for the real believer, they don't occupy the same space. So maybe if you stopped sinning, you'd stop feeling condemned. But again, the way you express the question, you really need to examine your heart to see whether or not you're in the faith. Romans 8 is the gateway to the Spirit-filled life. And there's no power of the Lord's Spirit. There's no presence of the Lord's Spirit when we deliberately sin. Jonathan asks, Can we contact the dead? I miss my mother so much. Jonathan, not only can we not contact, contact the dead, but that's an abomination to the Lord. Now, I understand missing your mother. Um, we Christians, we grieve, but we grieve like those, or we don't grieve like those with no hope. We grieve because we have hope. And let me explain to you, Jonathan, that your mother, as a believer, and I'm assuming she is, if your mother is a believer, she's in the presence of glory. Now, missing her is still a given, but you don't need her because you've got her Jesus. And right now, if she had one thing that she could say to you, it would be, no, it's Jesus. It's Jesus. So Jonathan, we cannot contact the dead. To seek familiar spirits is forbidden by God. Not only that, but assuming that you were able to contact your mother, would you really want to disrupt her time in the presence of Jesus to talk to her? So think about her rather than thinking about yourself. And you can talk to the one in whose presence she is. I think sometimes, Jonathan, we get our priorities all wrong. If you would talk to Jesus as much as you want to talk to your mother, you'd understand what I'm talking about at a depth that you never dream possible. Jesus died. He didn't stay dead. And because he didn't, your mother died. She didn't stay dead. And that same thing will happen to you. As a believer, that same thing will happen to you. That's why we focus on Jesus. So please don't contact the dead. I understand, as I said, missing your mother. But Jesus is the source of comfort. He understands us, Jonathan. He gets us. And he understands your pain and your loneliness. And he loves you, but you see, only he can feel that loneliness. Here is a question from Wendy. She said, Do you think believers will have children in the millennium? Um, Wendy, not believers who are raptured. Now, there, there will be believers uh, who, who are converted during the millennium, and they, of course, will have children. But um, you and I, we, we will have um, our glorified, physical, resurrected bodies, just like Jesus's, except for the wounds, uh, and in heaven... Uh, where we will be seven years prior to the the millennial reign kicking off. Um, um, It said that that we'll neither be married nor given in marriage in heaven. Um, That means um, Paula and I won't be married to each other. We'll both be married to Jesus. Um, He's going to make her hang around with me. But our affection is going to be set on Jesus. Now, the wonderful thing about that, Wendy, is that um, we'll actually love one another more than we ever dreamed possible with a purity and a selflessness that we can't understand until we rid ourselves of these sinful bodies. So in our new flesh and blood bodies, there will be no marriage. We will not be procreating and having children Uh, In the millennium, and yet we will rule and reign with Jesus over billions upon billions of Christians who are having children, people who are having children. Uh, And what form that'll take, the Bible isn't clear. But um, for raptured believers who return to earth with Jesus to establish his millennial kingdom, there'll be no marriage and no babies for us, while the rest of the world. In their flesh and blood bodies will continue to do that. Thank you, Wendy. I've never been asked that question before. I've asked questions question before we'd be married in heaven or married in the millennium. But it's the first time about kids. 340-9585. Uh, this program is only as interesting as your calls and questions. Here's a question from Jack. He says, I saw on YouTube that a Baptist church in California has been fined more than $50,000 for having their church open and they face even more fines. How can we stop this? Um, Jack, I, I, I looked for, um, uh, I, I searched YouTube to find out if I could see it, and and um, uh, I think the fines are pending, uh, and they're they're threatened to be enforced, but you're right, they have levied fines, and they continue to do it. Um, I talked about Joe MacArthur in response to questions last week. And um, we know that they, the the local government now—it's first the state, now the local government—is making uh, him an object of their wrath and trying to intimidate him. Um, but but the only way we can stop it is to pray for him. And that doesn't mean we're going to stop it. It just means that they'll have the supernatural strength that comes from the knowledge that that Christians all over the world are praying for them. A couple of things that we need to understand. There is nothing that the government can do to us that is outside the control of Jesus. He said the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. And make no mistake, the gates of hell are advancing. But we have to rest in the comfort, by faith, of knowing that Jesus is the one who's got his church. He says, when he opens the door, no one can close it. He's opened doors for these churches. And I salute those pastors. I admire them. I'm grateful for the numbers of people that are coming out. I'm grateful that sort of the charade of this pandemic is being uh, unveiled as well. And we need to get back to a place where we understand that a Christian's place is in the church. And we can't have church online. You can watch Bible studies online, but it's not church. The church is a gathering of God's people, not electronically, not on Zoom, but in a place where people can touch, where people can use the gifts that God has given them to minister to one another, where gifts of words of knowledge and words of wisdom and the gifts of prophecy can be exercised. That's what church is. And these guys in California that are standing up against that totalitarian authority, God bless them. Uh, I, I'm afraid, now we don't have to speculate because in Texas we have a governor and an attorney general who, who both are believers. But as long as people are showing up, the word of God is going to be fruitful as it goes out. So, Jack, I wouldn't worry so much about taking action. My action would be to pray for them and then to be inspired and encouraged by them. And what I would do with that is simply make sure that I'm a part of the church. And you know, Jack, if you're going to a church that's been closed, and unfortunately there's a bunch of churches that have closed for the year. When, when this quarantine started, they made the decision at some point to close for the entire calendar year. You, you, you Find another church. Find another church and go and be a part of the body. Get healthy again. Be prepared for the time that comings. You know, uh, Jack. That gives me an opportunity. I'm going to be teaching on Sunday in Second Timothy chapter three, the first four verses. And and my only goal on Sunday is to try to convince people that we truly are in the last hours of the last days. I'm going to do it by describing the world um, that Paul wrote about. T- some 2,000 years ago uh, and it describes a world that we live in perfectly and all of us we need to be ready for persecution we need to understand that it's in times when they try to stop us that the spirit of God will open doors This is a time where people can get saved. And make no mistake, the devil doesn't want people to get saved. He is behind all of these authorities that are trying to shut churches down. And it has been a, a tragedy, a church wide, church in general tragedy, that we have been so compliant that we've let them take away these rights. And all you can do, Jack, all I can do is individually keep doing what God has called us to do. We need to be like Peter and John and the others when they were told, you must not preach in this name. And they said to him, well, you decide for yourself, is it right for us to do what's right in the sight of men or in the sight of God? And that rhetorical question needed no answer. Well, in the same way, we've got to be focused on doing what's right in the sight of God. That's our biblical command. And so, Jack, you pray for those people that are exercising courage and faith, but at the same time, make sure you're doing it, following their example as they follow the example of Christ. You know, as any of you who've been listening on a regular basis know, we've been getting a lot of questions the last three or four weeks about these kinds of issues and I never would have believed that the church men and women that I really believe were mature Christian strong believers it never would have occurred to me that we would have folded our tent and that's exactly what we've done Now, not everybody of course I'm speaking generally but there are people who will never go back into a church even though they were regular attenders whether it's fear, whether it's a lack of courage. Who knows? But we've got to be focused on doing what God has called us to do. I was thinking this morning, Jack, when I was walking with the Lord, uh, I was thinking about all the people that were serving in their churches before this quarantine started who no longer have an outlet for the gifts of the Spirit. I was thinking about the ministries. Um, we have had, I'm sure every church has had, a bunch of people that signed a commitment. And when I say signed a commitment, we don't actually have them sign it, but you understand what I mean. They said that, that God's called them to do this ministry or that ministry. and And we've had people here at our church. We've had people who are no longer keeping those commitments because they're afraid of coronavirus. I'm not talking about people who are in high-risk groups. Please understand that. There are some people that we don't want them here. Now, there are some people that shouldn't be here that we can't keep away, and I'm not going to tell them they can't, can't come. They understand. They need to be in the body. But I'm talking about people who stopped coming just because they're afraid that they might catch the virus. And though they made a commitment to God to serve, children's ministry, all over the churches, at least in San Antonio that I'm aware of, children's ministries have been severely diluted. I mean, we're still having children's ministry on Sunday, but tonight, Wednesday night, our Bible studies on Monday night for the men and the women, the people who were serving in those ministries who are they serving now and it truly is tragic and it's causing people to go more and more alone and the enemy is pounding there's strength in numbers we need the church we need each other Jack, thanks for the question and the opportunity for me to editorialize just a little bit. Um, Oh, here's another anonymous question I'd forgotten I got. Uh, How long will we have to wear the masks in church? (laughs) I wonder if that's somebody from our church. Um, I hope not very much longer. You know, the masks don't do any good. They just make us feel like we're doing something. They don't stop the spread of this virus. But... We make that sacrifice and as uncomfortable as it is, we make that sacrifice. It's not asking much, I think, of the Lord, so we do it. I'm wearing a mask. Every time I put a mask on my nose starts running. With other people at the church, they instantly get headaches. They can't concentrate of one lady who can't even see straight because of the mask. And you know, we gotta kinda of soldier through all that stuff because we too need to be in the body of Christ so I don't know Anonymous I had somebody ask me today how much longer is this COVID stuff going to go on are we ever going to get back to normal I don't think we'll ever get back to normal but nobody knows how long this stuff is going to go on I have a sneaking suspicion that it's all going to go away after the presidential election which would make us all the more fools if that's the case but I don't know how much longer uh, anonymous. I'm, I'm still trying to struggle with my gym, wants me to wear a mask while I'm working out. And that makes me almost want to pass out, so I've not been able to do that. 3409585 phones are quiet on this wet Friday. We'd love your calls. Here is a question from Dale. Uh, why do Christians honor the Sabbath the Pope established? instead of the one God established. Dale your question reeks of of ignorance in terms of the history of the church the Pope established Sunday is the Sabbath I don't know if we ever read that. all you have to do is look at your Bible. the first day of the week was established as the day that Christians got together in the first century, because that's what the apostles did. It has nothing to do with the Pope. You need to get off the Internet and stop reading conspiracy theories. Um, the, the Sabbath, the Jewish Sabbath, the seventh day was a picture of our Sabbath rest in Christ. Uh, Hebrews is very clear about that. Uh, Colossians mentions it. Um, but... but worship was established, corporate worship was established on Sunday from the very beginning in honor of the resurrection. Eight is the number of new beginnings, the old is gone, Um, the Jewish law, the commandments are gone, and the new has come. Well, what's the new? We celebrate in the power of the Spirit, we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and we celebrate it because we want to honor Him. And Dale, having said that, you know, you can worship God on Saturday if you want. Paul writes the Colossians and says every day is a day for worship. So just worship, but stop with the conspiracy theories and the bad church history. Uh, The Pope didn't establish anything. The, the, The church in Rome wasn't even the official church of the world until 313 AD when Augustine declared that it was the official religion of Rome and it's kind of been there ever since but you see we're not under the control of Rome so honor whatever day you want but, but get your facts right it's sort of dishonoring when Christians repeat this kind of nonsense Another anonymous question. Should Christians take the vaccine that is being produced for COVID? Um, I don't know. I'm not a doctor. I heard somebody say the other day, a Christian now, in fact, a pastor in conversation. I'm not taking the, the vaccine until I hear from Fauci's mouth that it's safe. And my response was, why would you take something from Fauci as being true? Well, he's the leading authority. Do you know how many times he's been wrong? Now, if, as I suspect, the root of this question is people saying, and I've had this question already this week, is taking the, that is, is if we take the vaccine, is it taking the mark of the beast? Just throw away all that stuff. You know, one of the terrible things about quarantine is we all have way too much time. Instead of studying God's word, we're on the internet reading silliness. So, should Christians take the vaccine? Uh, probably we should. If we wear masks, just for the appearance of doing something and an approved vaccine comes along, why wouldn't we want to take it? I know so we're, most of us anyway, overwhelmingly most of us, we take vaccinations for all kinds of illnesses. Why wouldn't we want to produce? So yeah, I, I, you know, if they tell me a vaccine is okay and they tell me I could get it again, as most of you know, I've had COVID-19 already. We had the symptoms, Paul and I, and a bunch of other people from our church uh, if I can get it again I'll be vaccinated I don't want to get it again but we get the, all these questions about whether or not this stuff is going to keep going on and on and on while well, the vaccination in the not too distant future we hope appears to be a way where we can actually come out from inside our homes and walk unafraid and take these masks off for crying out loud. So, um, Anonymous, you do what you want to do, but I'm pretty sure that if they tell me it's okay, we'll take it. If I I can get it again. I don't even know if I can get it again. I can never really get a, a good answer to that question. Well, we're inside our final minute for this half of the program. Again, the phones have been quiet. We'd love to get uh, some participation from you in the audience. Three four zero ninety five eighty five is our number for live calls and questions. Uh, or you can call eight seven seven six three zero kslr You can email questions to us by emailing questions at CalvarySA.com, or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. This is the last day of the week. It's Friday. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. We'll be back in two minutes. Welcome back to the show. We've got 30 minutes left on our week. Here is the question from Jackie that I knew was coming. I didn't know if I'd get to it. Uh, Pastor Ron, if there's no marriage in heaven, will married people even know each other or spend eternity together? Jackie will know more in heaven than we know on earth. That's for sure. We know in part here. There we'll know in full. And yeah, we will be together. Uh, I, I said to the other question, um, Jesus is going to make Paula hang out with me. So, that's we're one flesh. That's not going to be broken. It's just going to be broken in an earthly way. We're going to, there's going to be a whole new order of things. So, we will know one another, and we will spend eternity together. Uh, we will probably rule and reign or serve together, whatever service looks like when we get to heaven. But, yeah, um, I, I'm convinced that Paul is going to be forced to be stuck with me forever and ever and ever. We will know more in heaven than we know on earth thanks for the question Jackie um, boy I got another coronavirus question this is anonymous he or she says it has bothered me that Christians are so afraid of coronavirus uh, when we are the people who shouldn't be afraid of dying um, let me uh, approach this a couple of ways anonymous one it bothers me too that, that so many Christians are afraid of this virus um, nobody wants to get it but, but to, to be locked in our homes, shut off from fellowship, shut off from service using our spiritual gifts, because we might get something, when the reality is at some point, short of a vaccine, everybody's going to end up getting this. There's no way to insulate ourselves from this, just like there's no way to insulate us from the flu or from the common cold. And yeah, it bothers me too. However, you sort of go over the line. You cross the line when you talk about we shouldn't be afraid of dying as Christians. I don't think anybody's really afraid of dying. We're not crazy about the process of dying. And it's really important that you get this. We have been given an instinct to live. And so as much as I want to see Jesus anonymous and I want to see him face to face more than anything else in my life, If I contract a disease that could be terminal, I'm going to fight it, not because I don't want to see Jesus, but because there's still life. The Apostle Paul wrestled with this question. Remember, he had been to heaven, so he knew what he was coming to. He said, I don't know what's better, to to die and be with Christ. And then he comes up with, yeah, that's better by far. But service here in the body remains faithful service for the Lord's glory. So it's a natural tension. And to say, well, I don't care about dying because I'm a Christian, I want to be with Jesus, is to ignore this instinct that we all been that we've all been given. We need to make the most of life here. The life we live here will determine the ability to to enjoy heaven. Once we get there, we'll determine the rewards, the crowns that we get. And we want to use every minute redeeming the time because the days are short paul says to rome um we need to make the most of every opportunity redeeming the time and every day that we wake up is a day to honor jesus with our service every day is a day to witness to unbelievers this glorious gospel that we've been given paul says it is the power of god unto salvation and the idea that we shouldn't be afraid of dying, everything in the unknown is fearful. We need to sort of demystify this. I want to be with Jesus more than I want my next breath. However, I don't want to be there one minute before he wants me to be there. And that's why we take care of ourselves. That's why we exercise. That's why we uh, watch what we eat. That's why we go to doctors So to categorize Christians as being afraid of dying just because dying isn't what we want to do is to judge unfairly, I think, anonymous. So I I share part of your sentiment. It has bothered me a great deal that Christians are so afraid of this virus. But the last enemy is death. We're all afraid of it. And even though we know that we'll be in the presence of the Lord, as wonderful as that is, the process of dying is still something that's a bit frightening. The unknown is frightening. Terry says, How should I speak to someone with terminal cancer who's been told by a faith Christian that she would be healed? Um, Terry, if she's already been told that, what you need to do is, is let her know that that person had no authority to say that she would be healed. only you believe enough, you'll be healed. God wants everybody to be healed. That's nonsense. And these faith Christians, and I use faith loosely here, were these false faith teachers. They cause so much pain. So please, Terry, very gently, but at the same time, firmly let her know that being healed isn't a promise that God has made the only promise that we've been given that concerns healing is that we'll all be healed in Christ of the terminal disease of sin. But, but people in this world, we get sick, we, we struggle, we die. And so you need lovingly to let her know that the Apostle Paul suffered and died. Timothy suffered many illnesses. Epaphras was sick and almost died even Jesus didn't get what he asked his father for so Terry um, be gentle but, but but tell her the truth tell the truth in love let her know that you'll be there with her and you'll do everything you can to keep her in prayer and you'll be praying for strength to handle the disease and the remedy, but tell her the truth in love. Sometimes it'd just be easier. People would just be quiet. Patricia says, "Is Jeremiah twenty nine eleven a verse that's promised for me today?" Um, Patricia, sort of. And when I say sort of, we, we can't ever take the Old Testament promises out of their context. God was talking to. Jeremiah to deliver a message to Jews whose life was being completely uprooted. Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon had come in. Jeremiah, you remember, remained in Jerusalem to, uh, to prophesy while Ezekiel, his counterpart, went into captivity in Babylon to prophesy. And neither one of them had a whole bunch of luck with people listening to them. But um, what Jeremiah was doing is telling Israel, look, there's, uh, I know God's made you all kinds of promises. I know that he's talked about a kingdom where he would have his son sit on the throne of that kingdom. But the time isn't now. And because you look around and you see the pain, you see the suffering, this is my judgment But then he said, don't worry, I have plans for you, plans to give you hope in the future, plans to prosper you. Well, that's a promise that goes all the way down into the millennium. So what he was saying, don't worry, you'll return from captivity in Babylon. And they did in 70 years, but not in splendor, not like in the millennial kingdom. So it was a short-term and a long-term prophecy. And we use this verse because we think that's the greatest promise ever. But let me tell you a bunch of better promises. Patricia, Romans 8. Just Romans 8. Look at the promises. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And for people that deal with guilt, for people who are guilty, that's a wonderful promise. If God is for us, who can be against us? I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength, another promise that he makes in another of the epistles. But nothing can separate us from the love of God, again in Romans 8. I mean, those are wonderful promises that if we'll just believe them, those are promises that we can own each and every day. So Jeremiah, sort of, generally, generally, But go to your New Testament where there are so many more wonderful promises that are yours. All we have to do is be workmen, workwomen who rightly divide the word of God. Patricia, I hope that helps answer your question. 340-9585, Greg says... Uh, Paul teaches that we are saved by grace, but Jesus taught that we must keep the commandments to be saved. Why the inconsistency? Greg, before I answer your question, you gives me an opportunity to uh, talk about my Bible study tonight. Three verses. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. For it is by grace you have been saved, and that through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God so that no man can boast. Think about that. Even the faith to believe is a gift from God. Then he says, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which he prepared in advance for us to do. So you're right, Paul teaches clearly, the Bible teaches clearly we're saved by grace. But Jesus, you say, taught that we must keep the commandments. He wasn't talking to you, was he, Greg? He was talking to Jews, men who were under law, as Jesus at the time was under law. And every time he said, you must keep the commandments, you must obey everything I say, what he's doing is saying, you can't do that. That's why I needed to come. That's why I came to die for your sins. I came to wipe away your sins. Remember the Jewish mindset was that, no, I'll keep the commandments and everything will be fine, but they couldn't keep the commandment. So the context of Jesus, here's another area where we've got to be good students of the Word. There's no way Jesus could contradict Paul, nor Paul could contradict Jesus, because both were working under the power of the Holy Spirit. So we are saved by grace. Now when we who are saved by grace out of gratitude for being saved, when we look deep in our hearts, then we ought to say, okay, Lord, how can I honor you for what you've done? You know, the law is a got to. Serving Jesus is a get to. There's a world difference between those two things. So we keep the commandments because we love God. God. I had a friend, a pastor in Oregon, he used to tell this story about how he would wash his dad's car, you know, it was one of his chores he had to do and, and he, he just hated washing it and complained and grumbled the whole time he had to do it. And then he got his driver's license and he was able to find a girl that he was really sweet on. And so he asked her if she'd go on a date with him. She said yes. He already had his father's permission to use the car. And he said, when I washed that car before that date, that was an act of pure love. No complaining, no grumbling. I washed that car inside and out because I knew that I was going to have a date using that car. Well, that's sort of how we should serve the Lord. Out of gratitude, there's no labor. It's just, it's the labor of love. You know, work is work, but a labor of love is a labor of love. So, Greg, no inconsistency there at all. Two different things, two different contexts. Good question. Jeff said, Pastor and I heard one of your teachings where you said Jacob wrestled with Jesus, but the text says he wrestled with an angel, so which is true? Um, both of them are true. Um, Jesus was, was wrestling with Jacob as the, not Anne, the angel of the Lord. And if you remember at the end of that wrestling match, he realized that God was in this place. The same thing is true in the passage where he fell asleep and saw angels ascending and descending on, on what is called Jacob's ladder. Surely God was in this place. So this was a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus as the angel of the Lord. And we know that when the angel of the Lord accepts worship, it's Jesus. No other angel would accept worship. This is, Jeff, I don't know if you heard me say this when I um, mentioned this. Um, I'll be I'll be doing this soon again. Actually, I'm in chapter 20 of Genesis on Wednesday nights now. This is chapter 32. Uh, so it's, it'll be a while, but This is one of my um, primary life verses. Um, Jacob holding on saying, I will not let go until you bless me. That's a part of my everyday life and has been for the 29 years that I've been walking with the Lord. I will not let go. I know that because I can't let go. If I let go, I'm going to ruin everything. So Jesus wrestled with Jacob in the form of the angel of the Lord And Jacob won the wrestling match. And he won it by surrender. And he won it by losing. So I hope that makes sense to you, Jeff. He's also, by the way, we know he appears in Joshua chapter 5 as the commander of the Lord's army. Joshua has an encounter with Jesus. We know that Gideon had an encounter with Jesus. We know that Samson's parents had an encounter with Jesus as the angel of the Lord. In Genesis 16, uh, the angel of the Lord Um, um, appeared to Hagar Um, I see you and then she says I see the God who sees me so over and over and over there is um, pre-incarnate appearances of Jesus Jeff if you're interested there is a great book called Christ Before the Manger it's written by a man named Ron Rhodes R-H-O-D-E-S and it discusses all of the pre-incarnate appearances, analyzes all the pre-incarnate appearances of Jesus in the Bible. Ron Rhodes is really, really solid, so I hope that helps. Thanks for the question. Raymond says, if someone is not elect, does it mean they cannot be saved? Um, No, it doesn't mean they cannot be saved, Raymond, but what it means is that they will not be saved. There's a big difference. Uh, everybody can be saved. All we have to do is believe and ask Jesus into our heart. That's all we have to do. Everyone, uh, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes would have everlasting life. So everybody can be saved, but not everybody will be saved. So the idea of election here is God, according to his foreknowledge, Romans chapter 8, verse 29, 1 Peter 1, 1 and 2, According to his foreknowledge, he chooses those who he knows are going to choose him. And um, they are the elect. So if somebody refuses to choose Jesus, it's not because they can't choose him. It's because they refuse to choose him. And that's a big difference. I think in this discussion we have on this program fairly consistently about Calvinism Versus our meaning is more the, I always talk about the the position of balance between the extremes. Um, I think we try to think with our minds and God's ways are not our ways. And and we have to understand there's a basis upon which God chooses us. But the invitation to be chosen by God is given to everybody. Now he knows what we're going to do. He knows the choice we're going to make or the choice we're not going to make and based on that choice he makes a choice of us so they can be saved but they won't be saved God knows the outcome Three four zero ninety five eighty five. it looks like we're getting closer and closer to the whole day without a call um, Anonymous says I wasn't the best or nicest husband to my wife now she has left me and won't respond when I tell her God doesn't permit divorce. How can I convince her? Uh, Anonymous, you you need to say nothing except I'm sorry. All you can do is say, I'm sorry. I love you. I know I messed up. I deserve this. But I'd sure like another chance. You know, it always amazes me when... um, a wife leaves or a husband leaves, and, and the, the, the injured party will say to me, but but God doesn't permit divorce. Why can't you make her or make him not leave? And I usually will say something, well, you said in this particular context, you weren't nice. God doesn't permit that either, but you went ahead and did it. Why do we think the rules only apply to the other person. You know, Anonymous, if you said you weren't the best or the nicest husband, I'm sure that's an understatement. There are consequences to that. Your wife gets fed up with it. Now, except for adultery or physical abuse, she shouldn't divorce you. But neither should you have been a jerk. And if you want to win your wife's heart, you need to show her that you're different. And the way to do that is accept responsibility. Can you imagine how awful it would be uh, for a wife who's been married to a husband who isn't kind to be told by that husband that, well, God says you can't do this. I mean, that will only further harden her heart. So how about instead going to her and saying, you know what, I deserve this. I'm sorry. But if you give me another chance, you'll see that I'm a different man. And even the way you ask the question, anonymous, it doesn't sound like you're a different man. You still are kind of selfish. It's about you instead of being about her. Divorce is awful, but so is the way you treated your wife for however many years that was. So just because she finally left you, don't forget that you're still guilty And if you wanted to give you another chance, you need to show her that you're a different person, a different man. Regina, this will be my last question, I think, of the day, of the week, actually. Um, Regina says, the idea of a rapture seems impossible to me. What are your views on believers being caught up in the air suddenly to be with Jesus? You know, Regina, I really, really get this. Uh, When I first got saved... Um, two of the men who were instrumental in in leading me to the Lord um, called me one day and said, we want to take you to breakfast. We want to talk to you about, about the rapture of the church. I had no idea what the rapture of the church was. I didn't grow up in church. I never even opened a Bible until I got saved. So I said, okay, free breakfast, I'll go. And they started explaining to me and here's how one of them put it: He said, "You know, if Jesus decides to come back now, all the Christians in this room are suddenly going to go away, and their clothes are going to be left behind, and we're we're going to be suddenly taken away, and then the rest of the world is going to be plunged into the great tribulation." And I, my first thought was, "What have I gotten myself into? These guys are nuts." But after you read the Bible, you let the Word of God convince you of what's true you realize that the rapture is not only a reality, but it's a promised relief, the blessed hope, Paul calls it. So, does it seem impossible? Yeah. Naturally, it is impossible. But this is a supernatural event where Jesus comes to take us to be with him where he is. And so the rapture of the church is a legitimate doctrine of our faith it is um, a moment that we should all look forward to with longing always looking at that eastern sky I do every morning that's where Jesus is going to come from today could be the day Lord but the rapture of the church as impossible as it may seem is really a wonderful promise from God to us because he loves us so look forward for his return, he's coming soon. Now, by the way, I'll close on this. I'm going to be teaching uh, on that on Sunday's Bible study, Second um, Timothy chapter three, verses one through four, um, because I want to convince people that we're in the very last hours of the very last days, and Jesus could come at any moment, and in an instant, in the twinkling of an eye. We will not all die, but we will all be changed. And we'll be taken out of these bodies and exchange them for glorious physical resurrected bodies. This truly is the blessed hope. We look around at the world that we live in, we see all of the pain. We see what's happening to people during the coronavirus. We see people literally deteriorating before our eyes spiritually and mentally. You look around at all the pain all the wickedness and all we can think is come Lord Jesus come, come quickly. And that's what He's promised to do us. So Regina it may seem impossible to you but it's true. Read 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and 5 read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 51. And wait for the Lord's return. Hey, a quick reminder, no live radio show on Monday. Have a great and safe holiday. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Get to church, Christians. We'll see you on Tuesday. Bye-bye.
0: Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Harbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4